experienced here in Victoria? Are we able to reflect yet? Are we far enough away? Joining you in the studio, Associate Professor Luke Birchall. He's an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and also one of those very clever people that understands the value of the arts in terms of processing things. Morning to you, Luke. Good morning. Thanks for the invite. Oh, no, it's good that we could drag you off rounds and get you in. I've come straight from the wards, straight from the land of heart attacks and chest pain, rhythm problems. Well, that's what's so interesting about your work. You are a cardiologist. Was there much call for cardiology during COVID? You know, we read that there were a large number of people presenting with heart-related complications because of COVID. We were quite fortunate. We really didn't see that many. But certainly globally, cardiac complications were very common. My PhD, in fact, Mm. focused on Mm. ACE2, which is the spike protein for SARS-CoV. And little did I know that PhD that I did and completed back in 2009 would actually hold the key to the current pandemic. See, I knew that you were intrinsic to this entire conversation. Now, the reason we met was through Melbourne Knowledge Week, that you were involved in a wellbeing hub set up through the Royal Melbourne Hospital for healthcare providers who recorded their experiences and those recorded audio experiences were distributed through Melbourne University to filmmakers who were isolated and deprived of a living and going out of their minds not having anything to do and they've created a series of short films which I think you can see up until today is that correct that is correct you can stop by the meat market um, hub and you can view each of these eight films which are they're really unique stories that capture the experiences of healthcare workers uh, impacted by the pandemic why is this such an important time capsule to capture the experiences of the healthcare workers I think it's important because of the chaos of the pandemic. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about action bias. I think Action bias? I know. I'm really branching out here as a doctor and a cardiologist, mm. thinking about society. Not just being a carpenter with bits and pieces inside the body. Not just putting in the stents, prescribing the pills, but thinking about what's happening outside the hospital. Mm. That is true. And one of the things that I saw with the pandemic was action bias, which really means we're compelled to act. You know, that feeling that you have when you encounter something that's uncomfortable, it's difficult, or even a conversation where someone's sharing something and you want to offer the solution straight away. Yeah. Yeah, that's action bias. And I think what I was observing is many different kinds of solutions being thrust upon healthcare workers, not a lot of time actually just saying, can we just sit and listen and understand what's going on here? Because if we sit and listen and understand this, we might be able to provide some supports and some solutions that actually meet this community where they are right now. Right, rather than just imposing things. Yeah, guessing and and rushing in. I think that the risk of harm really escalates when we don't do that self-check and think about why am I entering this space? What are my intentions here? Often action bias is actually directed towards ourselves. I think I understand. When you say it's directed towards ourselves, can you explain that for me just a little bit more simply? Well, you tell me something that is really confronting. It would just be easy for me to say, well, yeah, that's terrible, uh, Libby, but are we still going to go out and get that lunch? Um, What I think you should do is just go and, and so on. 
it's really deflecting and uh, short-circuiting a conversation right. that requires us to just sit with it and understand and listen. So can I make a confession? I have some action bias, I think, going on at this moment. <laughs> right now? Right now. Here with us. Yes. I didn't see it. Well, it was about what I have heard you speak about, about having an Aboriginal mother and an English father and being a white man and an Indigenous medical practitioner. Yeah. I'm interested to know where the health outcomes for Indigenous people would be better should there be more people like you involved in delivering that health care? Well... Uh, I can answer that question, but I still want to understand what do you feel is the action bias? Because you're here asking me questions and it sounds like you're ready to listen. I am. I knew you were going to say that. I think we're married because I knew what you were going to say. Maybe in another <laughs> life. Maybe in another life. I think that more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the various systems that we work across are ultimately the solution. So the short answer is yes. Let me tell you an anecdote. A notable leader from the community here in Melbourne mm -hmm. was admitted to Royal Melbourne Hospital. He had self-discharged just hours before from another hospital in Melbourne because he experienced racism. And the story was that he was getting frustrated because he didn't understand what was happening in relation to his care. And when he became more assertive in expressing that to the nurse, he was told to be quiet. And when he said, but I'm getting frustrated and I'm raising my voice to communicate that, he was told, I'm going to need to call security. Oh. And he discharged himself. And he came to Royal Melbourne Hospital, and I'm not suggesting that we have everything signed, sealed and delivered, but the Aboriginal Liaison Officer texted myself and Glenn Harrison, who is the Aboriginal Emergency Physician. The three of us were there within a couple of minutes. And what was most powerful for me was that community member's feedback. He said, it's not about the paintings. It's not about the message sticks. It's not about the use of our language. What mattered to me, I came to this hospital and there were three people that identify as Aboriginal and they were standing with me, listening to what had happened and caring for me. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of work at Royal Melbourne on reconciliation action plan and policies and, and so, so on, but, and even cultural safety training. But at the end of the day, what Aboriginal people want is other Aboriginal people because that's when we actually can relate and feel safe. That's how you actually create safety. But when he looked at you... Luke, he wouldn't have seen on the outside an Aboriginal person. I'm looking at you and you've got, I would say, paler skin than me and I've got that Russian peasant skin. You don't look brown. Right. So here is some, some learning because what happened in that moment when I came down and I was relating to him, we, we recognise Aboriginality. That's about culture and heritage. It's not only about skin colour, okay? So I grew up uh, probably the palest kid in my family. Right. And there was a term for me. What was that? Gubberigine. Gubberigine? Gubberigine? Yeah, gubber. 
What's a gubber? White fella. Oh. I was a gubberigine. Okay. So my cousins used to say, well, he's one of the gubberigines. And uh, I had cousins that were various shades of, you know, black, brown and brindle. Um, but I was definitely one of the palest Aboriginal kids in my family and in the community that I grew up in. That's Marupna. Um, and so I have to be honest, you know, trying to reconcile skin colour with culture and identity, that has required work. That's something that I've needed to think about and I still think about every day. Every day? Yeah, and I think the reason it's a continuing process is that the conversation around race, culture, heritage and skin colour is a dynamic one. So at the moment, you know, we're talking about white privilege and in the community, white passing privilege. And so I think I have a role here to play. I do too. Because I find that uh, people really react against the term white privilege. People don't like it when they have white skin. Really? Oh, yeah. I would have thought they would feel guilty, like they would accept it when they look around. I mean, you, during the pandemic, not only faced COVID as a medical practitioner, but Black Lives Matter. That must have been incredibly confronting. And with George Floyd's um, murder and the social upheaval, yes, it was. It was incredibly confronting. And I said at the time, I, I felt like my worlds were colliding. Really? For sure. Because I think that the pandemic really highlighted and amplified inequities in healthcare, but also inequities across those systems that we work within. Mm. I think about the communities that I represent and serve. I represent and serve the Victorian Aboriginal community, Yorta Yorta and Jar Jar Barang. I represent and serve adults with congenital heart disease. That's the patient community that I care for. And I represent and serve healthcare workers. That's a community that I'm part of. And I think COVID, the pandemic, and then Black Lives Matter was just this perfect storm where it just felt like it was the end of the world. Really? The end of the world? Yeah, it really did. I think, I think there were days where it felt bleak. It felt dismal. It felt hopeless and very isolating. Because you are firmly of the belief, and of course we know, that health outcomes are influenced and determined in some instances by race. By race and by perception of race. Um, because I think we have different understandings of race depending upon our histories. Mm. So for me, my Aboriginality is about my history and my culture and my heritage. For others, race is about skin colour. And in the medical literature, for many years, uh, race has also been about this holy grail of is there a genetic basis mm. that defines race? Mm. Do you find that kind of research distasteful? I find it harmful and I realise now that the truth is a very slippery thing. Tell me more. You know, I 
did a PhD because I thought, well, that's what you must do if you need to learn the truth. It's acquiring methods that take you closer to the truth. And in this process now, over many years after completing my PhD, what I realise is I've been sold a story. You know, even as a cardiologist, just as an example, when I went to the United States and Canada where I worked for almost a decade, there's a particular medication that we were told had strong evidence that it was for African-American people. It was a blood pressure pill, a heart pill. Developed for a race. And when you go through your medical school and your postgraduate training, you're taught... If you see an African-American person with heart failure, this is the evidence-based treatment to the point that we would stop other medications and start this pill. So I've been reading this amazing book by Angela Saini called Superior, which is about race. Mm. And I finished it just a couple of weekends ago and I felt like the world fell out underneath my feet. Why? Because I discovered that the evidence for this pill is actually based upon a study of 49 people. And the reason the study was done was because the pill was coming out of its patent and it was going to become cheap. And so what the company did is they ran the clinical trial of African-American people taking a pill that we already knew worked across other races and they showed pretty much similar results to what had already been demonstrated across different ethnic groups. And it was because of that study they were able to put in a new patent. It was entirely a commercial decision behind legitimising the use of this pill. So imagine being a cardiologist working. I've worked for years believing this evidence. And to realise that I'm part of this system that has propped up these notions of race and other systems that use race as a way to benefit to exploit. To exploit. It means to me I'm at a more mature phase in my research career where I really question the truth and the underpinnings of, of what we've been told. Associate Professor Luke Birchall is our guest from the Royal Melbourne Hospital. He's a cardiologist. I read about your mum who went back and did her Masters of Social Work in her 50s, obviously. Amazing woman. Amazing. Yorta Yorta woman, right? Yorta Yorta Jaja Warang. See, we're, many of us are a couple of nations because the cultural practice was that you didn't marry within your own group. Clan. Within your own clan. That was really important. So that's why you'll hear all of these people, oh, Miori, Yorta, Jaja, Warang, Gundi, Jamara, and so on. But the fact that you went off and studied medicine mm. and, and went so far in your medical career, is that something that's uh, true for your family? Your mum obviously instilled a love of learning. Well, this goes back to my great-great-grandfather, James, Grandfather James. The story becomes more interesting because my great-great-grandfather, James, was Indian and he came from Mauritius and he studied medicine at the University of Melbourne in the 1800s but wasn't able to complete the degree because he had some complications related to a typhus infection. He was walking on the beach in Brighton and he met some missionaries and they said, we need you to work on these missions. And he went to Kumaragunja Mission and that's where he married 
my great-great-grandmother, Ada Cooper. Ada Cooper is the sister of William Cooper. After whom the new disputed stand at the Richmond Football Club at Punt Road Oval, the Indigenous activist, that's where it all ties in. Yes, and it comes back to your question. You know, education has always been a critical part of uh, our lives. Um, That was instilled in us over many, many generations. Uh, I'm from a long line of educated political activists. Um, Yorta Yorta in particular have played a major role in in the national conversation around Aboriginal rights. Absolutely, the Briggs family. The Briggs and my family, the Atkinsons. Yep, okay. The Jameses, we're all connected. Um, So, yeah, you know, I, I... had what I call the equivalent of a tiger mum. Maybe I'd say she's a wa mum because wa is our protector crow. And she really encouraged us to go as far as we could in our careers. But what's fascinating for me is the fact that you deal with the heart and you are obsessed with not just the heart internally, but as you said, you want to get to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to, again, meet our patients and our communities where they are, and um, that takes time. Uh, I've also been working with Megan Davis on the Uluru 